I hope you had some time to refresh and integrate and feed yourself. Perhaps speak with somebody else here and experience some friendliness. So I want to start off um, saying some things and then we'll do an exercise and then I'll say some more things. Now the trick here is to stay awake after lunch, right? (laughs) This is really hard. It's going to be easier for me because I have to talk. Um, So I'm going to be maybe a little lively or ask you to figure this out with me and then if things still feel sleepy, then I'll say everybody stand up and we'll stretch a little bit, okay? Because I, if I was in your seat, I would be tempted. I, I'm a notorious after-lunch napper myself, so I understand. I, I have compassion for the phenomenon and no judgment. So um, we're shifting this afternoon to looking at caring for others. Um, this is almost as inevitable as death itself that we will be caring for somebody else um, or we may choose to care for others as a path of service or we may already be caregivers um, in some profession or another. How many of you um, have cared for somebody while they were really sick or dying? Excellent. And how many of you have been cared for while you were very sick? Great. Excellent. Okay. And how many of you anticipate that you'll be giving some care to somebody within, let's say, the next year? Or that it's going to continue? Great. Okay. Super. A couple of things about um, caring for others. Um, we have some natural tendency, a genuine empathy or compassion as human beings. And or we have responsibility through family or marriage or profession. Not all of us choose to be caregivers or are that happy about it sometimes or all the time. Um, And at Zen Hospice Project, we have found that caregiving can be a spiritual practice or can be expression of our practice. So um, I'd like to talk to you about what that in particular looks like for us at Zen Hospice Project, because it's unique to combine Buddhist principles with caring for others and being in the presence of old age and sickness and death. And um, one of those ideas is that um, it is a spiritual practice, that caring for another, like contemplating our own mortality, is a vehicle for awakening or for learning things that somehow we can't learn any other way or we didn't really get until we were caring for somebody else. 
you know. Um, so that's a, a possibility or a, a framework that we hold caregiving in, and that um, the act of caregiving is a spiritual practice and an act of service. Um, and by service, I do not mean um, helping, and I don't mean controlling. We get a little mixed up. Um, uh, in uh, Buddhism, we have this idea, and it's not just the Buddhist idea, that um, all of life and creation is connected or interdependent. Uh, that we all came about because helium and hydrogen got together a long time ago. <coughs> and here we are. Um, on a relative level, I live in a different house and a different body with a different name and different set of clothing. But on an absolute level, we're all members of creation and connected to each other. So um, what we do as an hospice is we remember this and we use it as a point of reference for caring for others so that we are all experiencing old age and sickness and death. And it's not the sick person in the bed and I'm the healthy person out in the hallway. You know, This is a fundamental shift in the way that care is provided. I, too, am of the nature to grow old and be sick. So to care for you and learn about this process is a way to care for myself and unfold my own consciousness. Um, I am not the healthy person and, and you're not just the sick person. Because in a helping relationship, that's what happens. You know, the healthy practitioner, professional or family member and the poor sick person, you know, and then as the healthy person, I'm constantly bending down to lift you up, bending down to lift you up kind of thing, you know. So eventually I get a sore back and this person feels a little resentful or less than, you know, I kind of create this hierarchical model. So we really try to remember and hold and see how we're just like the person in the bed. Um, not on a relative level, but absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, if somebody is talking about um, aging with me and what it's like, um, I might also talk about aging with them and what it's like. So, you know, I'm not like you, bed-bound, but actually I'm... I have adult onset of diabetes, or I'm losing my memory with menopause, or I have this trick knee, you know, that I, this was the first year that I didn't go skiing, you know, so that we kind of share the experience of aging rather than keep ourselves as separate. Does that make sense? Yeah, very, very important. And this is related to this idea that we're connected. And it's also this idea that I can't really journey with somebody if I haven't done some of my own journeying as well, which is why we do the work like we did this morning to look at our own relationship with aging and sickness and dying. And the other thing that we hold um, in our caregiving is that um, aging and sickness um, and death are more than a medical event. Uh, in this culture, we can get so oriented towards 
a diagnosis and treatment. You know, I am a person with diabetes. You know, I am a person with high blood pressure. I am a person with uh, obesity. You know, and and even then in institutions, it's you know, it's the the knee in 314 and the diabetic in 212. You know, and um, so in our caregiving, we try to really mirror to people that they are more than their diagnosis or their medical process. That you are a physical being and a spiritual being and a social being and a creative being and a mystical being. Um, and that there's a, a way to experience that in addition to the medical process. Because that really bums people out if they just become really focused on the medical. And we see this when we say to people, how are you? And their first answer is, well, my blood sugar is high today. You know. Well, have you noticed... Um, the flowers blooming outside the window. You know, like we try to point out some things that aren't about their medical condition that are about the larger picture. Um, uh, medicine, um, diagnosis, treatment, very important, very skillful, but not the whole picture, if you will. Another way that we care for um, people is to um, uh, be willing or brave enough to stay when it's difficult. We get a little overwhelmed, you know, and we contribute to the medical dimension by saying, well, I don't know, let me call the doctor immediately, you know, like, um, and uh, it's an act of compassion to be really present and stay with what's difficult, you know. So if somebody's uncertain, we really sit with them in that uncertainty and explore it and help them make a decision or... Because there's lots of tiny decisions that get made, you know. Should I keep taking this medication? Should I go to the family reunion and make an effort to get out of bed this week? Um, should I keep this doctor? Is it time to move into a different facility? I mean, you know this, you're caring for people. There's a million decisions, right? Yeah. So uh, we try to stay when it gets difficult. And the way that we train to do this is through meditation practice. Because meditation practice teaches us to stay still even when our minds are really thrashing us, you know, are really difficult places to be. That we find some courage or some confidence to just stand still when things are uncertain or difficult. So actually, we meditate before we care for others. You know, like our volunteers do a five-hour shift a week. And the first thing we do is get together in the back room and meditate. You know, just to settle our minds and remember our capacity to be steady with things coming and going. Um, and connect with each other and have a sense that we're not alone. You know, um, this is really, really helpful. Now, we don't... Um, insert this meditation onto the people we care for. Uh, even though we find it useful, the people we care for aren't so interested in Buddhism. They want nice people, good food, clean sheets, and a television. You know, so we provide that for them. But we have found it very sustaining to bring some meditation to the practice of caregiving um, for our own steadiness, if you will, our own. Almost like taking your feet 
and putting them wider apart so it's harder to knock yourself over, you know? Please. Buddhism is a huge uh, issue to bring up to anybody, but um, how about just directing them sometimes to focus on the breath? I mean, Um, a lot of people can do that, but if you said Buddhism, they'd freak. Right. We actually uh, do more modeling um, than instruction. So um, we might come to the bedside and sit quietly and breathe. And you'd be amazed the difference that one mindful person can make in the room. All of a sudden people slow down a little bit or get a little quieter or can just feel like, oh, I guess it's okay to pause and wait, you know. So, And then sometimes we will do some instruction around uh, helping people relax a little bit, yeah. Um, but it's, it's less frequent than just our own embodiment of mindfulness that's instructive to people. Once in a while, then, they do get curious and say, can I join you in the back room? You know, and we say, sure, of course, you know. Uh, but as you know, it's, it's not an evangelical tradition. Yeah. Um, we also... Um, have um, some precepts. Uh, Most of you in this room probably know that precepts are a word used in Buddhism for principles or guiding banks of the river, if you will, or or guidelines. Um, We like the word precept because it sounds kind of Buddhist-y. These are um, ways to pay attention at the bedside. Um, and they're a way to be at the bedside that can connect us to the Dharma if we are ardent Buddhist practitioners. Um, and we've just found it really helpful. There's a lot of um, information about caregiving around things like signs of pain or um, how to communicate and have the difficult conversation, um, how not to burn out, you know. Um, These are more about how to be, ways to be. Um, A lot of, it's really wonderful that hospice care has come into this country 25 or 30 years ago. People have a lot more choice now and can decide many things about their death, like um, whether they want to be alert or have enough pain medication on board that can make them a little less conscious, whether they want to be at home or in a couple of different choices of facilities. People know enough ahead of time to fly in on an airplane and be present. You know, once upon a time, you couldn't get to a loved one's bedside. You know, if they were two states away, you got a letter in the mail two months later, you know. Um, People choose whether they want to be resuscitated or whether they want artificial hydration or nutrition. There's a lot of choices now, which is really wonderful. Um, And yet what we've seen sometimes is um, 
caregivers can walk in with these things like these big tools. You know, like, okay, I'm here to help you and carry this big toolbox, you know. And then put the toolbox down and start rummaging through the toolbox to figure out what the person needs before we even kind of meet them, you know. It's just, I, you know. <laughs> Um, what we found is um, to kind of metaphorically leave that toolbox at the door and meet the person and then decide what's best. You know, so again, we're really slowing down. We're really trying to meet the whole person, see if we can understand the whole picture and then decide, oh, maybe a little instruction around breathing would be helpful. Oh, Maybe we should schedule a field trip to a Giants game. Oh, maybe we should see about getting her some samosas since she's missing Indian food. This woman's from an Indian family, and you know. So we we try to figure it out rather than oh you're Indian okay I brought you some samosas you know. Oh, you're tense. Let me sh- show you some breathing techniques you know. Um, we've also found that when we bring this toolbox in. Um, somebody's going to trip over it. <laughs> you know, you're the patient or a family member or one of us. So, go slow. Whoops, what did I do? Sorry. And again, uh, before I tell you about these precepts, I would reiterate that uh, people are very vulnerable when they're sick because they're out of control and feeling powerless or compromised. It's very scary to even feel nauseous, let alone not be able to walk or remember or feed yourself. So when we're with them, uh, our actions are greatly magnified or our attitude can be very, very visible Um, or um, our generosity can be misperceived as judgment. You know, that So people are vulnerable and they're also a little hyper aware, you know. Um, I remember once working at the hospice, I had been away and I came back and there was a man that had been there for a while. And I said, oh, David, I'm so happy and surprised to see you. And, you know, the minute it came out of my mouth and the way he looked at me, I might as well said to him, oh, David, you're not dead yet? You know, like... um, Context is everything. And so, you know, for somebody who has not left a room or his bed since I went on vacation and came back, um, and I'm kind of just going through life kind of quickly or thoughtlessly, you know, it's just, um, he was a good sport about it. He said, well, where'd you think I was going to go? You know, <laughs> we had we had good rapport and, you know, it was fine. But um, And that doesn't mean to be careful or hold back, but just that's the value of being present or balanced or mindful. Yeah, exactly. 
So um, one of our principles, there's five of them, and you're going to get a handout, so you have something in writing. Is um, uh, to welcome everything and push away nothing. To welcome everything and push away nothing. We're habituated in life to to decide what you like and, and what we don't like. And even when we're kids, I, I watch my sister with her kids, you know, do you want the red balloon or the blue balloon? You know, do you want the truck or the fish toy, you know, like. And so at the bedside, we're often immediately saying, oh, I don't like that this is the way this is. I don't like that there's an oxygen tank in the room. I don't like that the doctor prescribed this medication for my mother, you know. We immediately kind of get into this evaluation. Um, and what we found is it's, it's not helpful as a caregiver for our primary focus to be deciding what's good or not good. It's much more effective and supportive for the other to be um, wondrous and curious, to say, hmm, mom, what's it like for you that this oxygen tank is here now? Wow, look at it. It's kind of green and clunky. You know, what do you think? And then she might say, oh, I'm so glad it's here. I feel so much better just knowing that it's in the room. You know, it might be unappealing to me to have an oxygen tank present, you know, Um, because there's a, a mystery in all of this that we can find and pay attention to. But we have to stay kind of open to it all um, and not immediately push things away. The second precept is um, uh, we say don't wait, uh, which is to um, not have expectations or worry, um, but not also to think that there's a lot of time. So if I'm with somebody and I feel really touched by their openness or that they've shared their story with me about their first communion, or uh, that um, I felt really connected when I was giving you a bath today, you know, whatever level of caregiving we're doing, to, to let the immediacy of our contact and experience be expressed um, and, and not be too hung up on being waiting, you know, we, not, not to wait so much, so to, to really value the present moment and know that because things are changing so much and so quickly, it could be really different, really quickly. So, um, and it, it could be so different that that person's not around the next time I see them, if I'm a hospice volunteer, or um, it could be that tomorrow uh, the moment is gone and we've moved on from today's bath to the next kind of obstacle or thing to be done. And it feels kind of weird to say, well, yesterday, you remember, yada, yada, yada. Um, Or it could be that very shortly somebody will lose their mental aptitude and not be able to receive that kind of information. So we don't wait. The third one is um, that we bring all of who we are to the bedside. We bring all of who we are to the bedside. Um, So sometimes... 
our first thought is, I need to be strong for my mother. I'm not feeling very hopeful today, so I won't go see her. You know, or I won't go be there. Or I'll hide it. You know. And uh, this is actually not really supportive. Because um, the people we're caring for are vulnerable. And they don't feel strong all the time. There's value in sharing our vulnerability or our fatigue or our frustration with them. Why? Because we're all having this experience. It's not just me, the strong one, and you, the weak one, and this whole dynamic that just does not work, that is helping and fixing and not really serving. We say that when we're bringing our whole self into the equation, everybody's being served. I'm benefiting and receiving as much as I'm serving or giving to somebody else. So there's a mutual exchange. Please. Would you discriminate on that, like, if you're in a mood of blaming the patient for for something, you wouldn't encourage them to necessarily express that, but rather observe it and confess something that's more um, vulnerable? Thank you. Uh, the point here is to um, be a fellow human being and not an expert or so separate. So I have been with people that if they're really grouchy and judgmental, I might say, you know, I have a real grouchy and judgmental side too, you know. And uh, if I was in the hospital bed like you are, I don't know if I'd be talking to me either. I might kick me out of the room, you know. So kind of invitation for the whole experience. Um, I, I don't think I, if I really thought this person's fourth visit to the hospital because they're not exercising and it's their third bypass, you know, my thoughts about that, I wouldn't express that. No, that's more of my own work to do to let go of that kind of judgment. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like we're going to It's that we're, we're both human beings having an experience, even though I'm in this healthier body and, and you're sicker. Um, but we can both draw on our strengths and weaknesses to get through it. So don't, I don't keep my weaknesses outside the room. Does that make sense? Because what we want to really do is explore suffering together and develop genuine empathy. And empathy is when I see myself in you. And you see yourself in me, which is different than pity. You know, pity is, oh, you poor thing, you fell in a hole. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. So we bring our whole selves into the equation. And on a relative level, yes, I am going home. I am getting in my car and you are staying in this bed here. You know, and so that doesn't mean to deny the differences between us either. Uh, but there have been times when people have said, I don't understand why this is happening and I feel really frustrated and um, I don't try to cheer them up. You know, I think about the places in my life where I have been really discouraged and frustrated. I might disclose those or just recall them as a way to be a good companion for that person. I don't, I don't push it away or I don't try to kind of lift them up. Because what we see in meditation practice is the way out is through. You know, so when we sit and really break a sweat 
you know, we can kind of come out the other side, the pain in our hip, that if we sit and sit and sit with it, we develop ability to be with it, or it disappears and changes. And so it's that kind of tenacity, too, that we bring. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because we automatically think, well, I'm having a bad day, so I shouldn't go be there. Okay, like in the case of someone who is just really negative all the way around, and now it's magnified by this illness and stuff, do I just sit and listen to that negativity? Or I'm not sure how to handle it. I'm not sure what is the most helpful right. thing to do because sure. it's really prevalent. And I, right. I see this person, you know, verbally abusing the family and right. just, I mean, it's just... It's right. pretty heavy. Right. And, and I knew that she was sort of like that before she was really sick. But, you know, it's just magnified now. So I, I don't know what to do because, I mean, that's how it is. Right. And I still care about her, but I don't know what yeah. to do to, to, in that situation, which is like almost constant. Um, yeah. So um, what's it like for you to be with her? It's hard. It's hard. But, you know, I, I, I just need to be there for her because she feels abandoned, you know, because right. people don't call her. And, right. and, you know, we were biking buddies. We were, you know, we yeah, had really sure. some good times together. Sure. And, and so I wasn't around that negativity as much. I mean, I, I saw it coming through. But now it's, mm-hmm. I think it's hard because uh, I, I think I'm going to put my foot in my mouth if I say something or I'm going to sound preachy. Or, you know, I think sometimes I have sounded preachy just because I was like, you know, you know, your your husband's trying as hard as he can. He's, you know, in his clumsy way, he's caring for you. And, you know, you know, so So, it's hard. Sure. So my immediate thought is to just tell her that. Say, it's really hard to be with you and I'm not quite sure how to be here. Oh, okay. uh, With this that's present. You know, now this is not the first conversation. I mean, this is when you're kind of with yeah. somebody and have some foundation to the relationship, which I hear you saying. Yeah. You know, yeah. and two is um, is to invite her to consider why or what that's about for her. You know, is she deeply unhappy or angry? Yeah. Or depressed? Um, well, she has said that before. Yeah. You, you know, know that so she that she has been, and, so and you know, I could tell that she really wasn't happy in this yeah. marriage, and it was pretty miserable and all and, that. And so, to bring your whole self is to acknowledge, gosh, this is a little bit hard for me. You know, okay. to sit with you. I, I I care about you. I want to be here. I don't want you to feel abandoned. And a part of me wants to not be here because it's a little hard. Could we spend yeah. part of the time not talking about what's not working? You know, like. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to talk about some good things, you know. And, yeah. Um, but it's it's very challenging. And, yeah. Um, it's it's really touchy because I know people have told me people have told me that I'm I'm blunt and stuff. So I don't know when I'm being blunt and sure. you know when I'm being. I have the same okay. problem. You know, it's just like I just want to. This is the way it is, and oh my God, you're so blunt and. Oh, so okay. so you just might start talking about yourself. You know, I am uncomfortable. I want to be here, and I'm not quite sure how to be here. Uh, when I'm with you, hearing about what's not working, you know, 
so so that might be also you know but um, and then the other thing I think we have to not be um, really thin skinned and membraned and take on their suffering you know there is a, a protection practice that goes along with caregiving um, there's a Tibetan practice about called Tonglen where you take on the suffering of others and cleanse it and breathe it out I don't recommend this for caregivers it's too hard unless you've been doing Dharma work for a very long time because most of us take it in and don't let it go you know most of us are guilt ridden and overly responsible in the world as it is so we breathe it in and then we don't exhale you know um, so uh, the other thing is to um, do a metta practice or to pray for somebody is a way to wish them well either directly or quietly um, as a way to to be present but not um, take in their suffering in a way that it becomes toxic for us you know when I worked in a hospital I um, would burn sage in my car on the way home as a way to purify it's a purifying ritual to burn sage um, yeah and then also what we have found is we don't do this work alone you know so that when there is somebody that is difficult or draining um, that no one person is responsible or the only person that they're relating to you know we do the work as a community um, so that if some person's tired one day and wants to just do the laundry then, then somebody else is in the room talking to Annabelle if you will please fatigue is such a big factor for me because I'm trying well, like when my mom's been really sick in the hospital I'm trying to be with her as much as I can be and I'm shorting right. my sleep and I'm maybe shorting my meditation practice right. and so how to I mean is that something you would share I'm really tired I'm really exhausted I want to be here but I'm really exhausted yes and yeah mm-hmm. and would you move over can I lie down in the yeah bed right <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, you know it's tricky um, when there's a long illness. It's really that story of the t- the tortoise wins the race, you know, mm-hmm. and our instinct is to do a lot really quickly. And so um, sometimes at the hospice uh, we will um, sit with somebody in silence. It's less tiring than to keep oh, yeah. a conversation going. Yeah. We're to say to somebody, "I've run out of things to say. Can we sit in silence for a few minutes?" Or they might fall asleep, and we might stay. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and take in the visual surroundings and the energetic field and and process the environment um, but you're right it is fatiguing and um, we don't do it alone uh, we meditate to rejuvenate um, as a chaplain um, I have a pretty rigorous self-care program because I meet a lot of people who are suffering you know and it involves things like fresh air oh, yeah. and time with my dog uh-huh. and exercise yeah. and um, uh, getaways you know and I also minimize the relationships in my life that of people that need caregiving you know so um, sometimes I'll have friendships and I realize that I'm just working in that relationship you know 
Um, so maybe somewhere in your life, if you have increased caregiving with a, a family member, you may need to say, say to other friends or family, I need to take a step back from my usual role. I'm not planning the family trip this year. I'm not cooking Thanksgiving dinner. Somebody else needs to step up, you know, and, and uh, we need to kind of renegotiate some of our functioning in the system or, you know, I need less time at work or I need to leave early on Thursdays, you know, like to re- really renegotiate and mm-hmm. treat ourselves as if, particularly with a parent and it's acute, you know, that uh, this is a, um, a low-level crisis because it interrupts our schedule and our sleep patterns and our eating patterns and our exercise patterns and our routine. Mm-hmm. And then, then it's like, oh, okay, well, if all bets are off, then it's a little bit less stressful. I think if we try to keep everything as it was and then do this other thing, then, you know, ding, tilt. Yeah, and then we burn out. Please. Um, I'm in the medical profession, and about two years ago I had an experience where I was on the other side of the door, and uh, with a pregnancy I was in bed rest for five months and in the hospital for two months. And it was very, very enlightening to me. Um, and you really are completely out of control. It doesn't matter in many ways what you think or what you say, because what comes through the door comes through the door. So... Um, I think what is very helpful if someone is challenging or is, is being negative is because they, they are just over the top overwhelmed. And sometimes what is helpful is just to say I, that you hear them, that you appreciate them expressing it and what can you do to help. And they're not going to probably ask you to do anything, but I think just that acknowledgement is a huge release. Um, for someone who cannot get out out of the situation that they're in, and just to know that someone is willing to listen and is willing to to be there for them, and and you may even see some of that negativity dissolve away because negativity often is a defense, um, and it's just someone who cannot be heard or cannot get their message through, can't get their pain through, and sometimes a friend can really make a big difference with that. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Also, um, with some people, when they're sick or when they're aging, there is some mental illness that is present. And it's helpful to know if somebody is mentally ill because you're thinking, why are they telling that same story? Or why are they stuck on this memory? Or why can't they, you know? And then if somebody tells you, oh, okay, and then we can readjust our expectations and be able to welcome the experience without that sense of, "Am, am I... I'm losing track here of reality. And some of these things are very subtle. The reason we say bring your whole self to the bedside is that there's a togetherness that can come out of shared suffering. Which is why AA and bereavement groups and mother support groups work. You know, you don't go to a class to learn how to be a better mother. You want to be with other mothers who complain about what a pain in the ass two-year-olds are, you know? We share our suffering, we laugh, you know, the Alzheimer's support group, you know, you know, support groups work, you know, they don't have all the answers, but there is a release or a connection um, or a comfort that comes to know that I'm not alone. And the same is true for the person in the bed, even if I'm not in the bed. 
that you're not alone. I'm here with you. And I, too, have great concern about our government. You know, and, and we can talk about that, you know. Um, I found it helpful to um, also tell people about what's happening in my life because they're a little bored, you know. They're tired of talking about what they're eating or what's happening with them, you know. So I might say, you know, there was a bunch of pit bulls at the dog park yesterday and I got a little scared. It reminded me of that accident with the family. And we just have a discussion about dogs. And do you think that pit bulls should be allowed or what do you think about you know just anything that's kind of on my mind to kind of just as a topic of conversation or the slightest memory if somebody says that reminds me of my communion my first communion I will totally try to evoke that memory and and hear about that with them and then remember my own early childhood and my religious formation you know Um, so again it's not a medical experience or it's not just like oh I'm here with you because you're sick but but life goes on you know and um People who are sick have the needs that we do for intellectual stimulation, um, reading a book, um, reflecting on what's important or things that have happened. Um, people still want to be involved in decisions like with money or time, you know, so we really try to make sure people hold on to as much involvement as possible. And then um, we also uh, we do this thing called uh, beginner's mind practice. Uh, Suzuki Roshi said, um, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. And in the expert's mind, there are very few. (laughs) Beginner's mind. So we try to not be experts, but just stay open. So even if last week, Mrs. Smith... um, I remember once there was this woman, Kate, she told me all about her first communion. We had this long talk. And the next week, she completely didn't remember that we'd had that conversation. So I had to have literally have beginner's mind with her and start over, like introduce myself and hear about her. Um, and then with other people, it may be that the past three times I've visited, um, we've had a cup of coffee and played cards. And no, this time... I need to be open to the fact that Mrs. Smith is now much sicker and cannot sit up in bed, and so I'm going to find another way to be with her. Um, Or we don't think the last person we were with who had a um, broken arm, that person liked sponge baths. We don't come in and say, well, I know people with casts really like to have sponge baths. You know, Again, that becomes like this tool that we then trip over. So we really try to keep a beginner's mind. this is particularly tricky with medical professionals. Um, and uh, I found, you know, I, uh, one great way to uh, trip them up is to say, I don't understand. Would you explain it to me? Um, and uh, with the beginner's mind principle, I'm never embarrassed to say, would you explain it to me? You know, um, So we just try to keep beginner's mind um, And it keeps us a little bit free of roles and agendas. So welcome everything. Bring your whole self. Beginner's mind. Don't wait. Four. There's one more. Find a place of rest.
we often think we only be able to really be there and relax if somebody is in a good mood and has eaten and is sitting up and the TV's off and the windows are open and there's fresh flowers and nothing smells bad and then we can really have a good visit. You know, we set all these conditions for how it should go. Um, instead of just um, being really present and resting in the chaos or that things are not complete or together, you know. Um, we're so habituated to achieving and accomplishing and um, what if there is no place of everything's okay? We need to be able to rest or be okay and at peace with chaos and with uncertainty, with uh, difficulty. Does that make sense? So that's the last one. Find a place of rest. Um, as I said, these are um, precepts. Um, they're bottomless places of inquiry. Um, um, and they're best when they're lived or really pondered. Um, so uh, what I'd like to do now is give each of you a sheet with them on it. Um, these were originally penned by our founding director, Frank Ostaseski. Um So you'll see his picture here. And he's got a little bit of writing about each one. But um, I'd like for you to get with two other people, so groups of three. And... Um, Tell your other two people about a situation that you're in or have been in and how you could or did or might apply one of these that appeals to you the most. Okay. There's no right or wrong answers. Um, those of you that are listening, if you could listen well or just help the person think it through. Um, this is also a place where we can practice not fixing. So if the other person doesn't know, be with them. Don't help them get this exercise. Or don't take care of them by rescuing. Okay? Really. Because we are so, so habituated to fixing each other. You know? So if somebody doesn't know or needs a little time to talk it through, that's fine. Okay? Is that clear? We can do this? Okay. Um, I forgot to say before our last exercise in the room, um, try using a little bit of this front space so you have some auditory privacy because some of these things are very personal. Um, and also while you're talking about other people now, let us um, use the uh, precept of right speech and uh, the idea of confidentiality so that whatever is said here can stay here. Okay. Um, so if you need to use this to really complain about your friend who's really negative and you're worried that somebody else here you're in the same book group with them or whatever, that just this is going to stay here for the purpose of our own learning and um, awakening and um, that we're not meaning to disparage other people either at the same time. Okay? Can we do that? Okay, so two other people to create a little family system. This is not a permanent family. <laughs>